Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Jim Norton is a best-selling author and comedian you've seen in multiple stand-up specials on HBO and Epics, and in recurring roles on Louie and Inside Amy Schumer. But you've likely also heard him for almost two decades now, every morning on the radio. First is the third mic with Opie and Anthony, then second mic with Opie, now co-hosting his own Sirius XM program, Weekday Mornings with Sam Roberts. Norton's newest stand-up special, his first for Netflix, is called Mouthful of Shame. Jim sat down with me at the Olive Tree Cafe above the Comedy Cellar, talk about how we can all get over our own personal shame, how he was three years sober when he finally felt ready to pursue his comedy dreams, how Jim Florentine, Andrew Dice Clay, and others helped him along the way, why he chose to work with Jane Leno, how to stay above the fray when comedians attack other comedians, and having gratitude that you can get Robert De Niro to spank your bare ass. There's a lot to get to, so let's get to it! I would, but I, I really don't know what the fuck I'm doing when it comes to the mics or when it comes to... These are actually good microphones. Oh, thanks. You actually went out and bought like a real system. Yeah, I figured, good. you know, it took me so long to get into podcasting, I might as well do it right. Right. Um, now, first, before we go any further, last things first, I want to make sure I compliment you appropriately for Mouthful of Shame. It's Thank a great you. special on Netflix. Thank you for a nice write-up, too. And, and, and it was obvious you watched it. And I'm like, <laughs> that's really nice when someone like actually watches it and uh, is truthful and seems to like, have liked it. I appreciate it. Yeah, it, um, you know, considering you you had a uh, HBO special 10 years ago, Monster Rain, yeah. and you had two specials on Epics, this really felt like a reintroduction of Jim Norton. I, it, was that your intention? No, I mean, I, I felt better about this than I have about anything I've ever done. Um, I've, I actually did three for Epics. I did um, Contextually Inadequate, American Degenerate, and Please Be Offended. Okay. And, and this one is, uh, I feel better about this one, even better than Monster Rain, because... Uh, it was a much more personal one. Like right. Monster Rain, I told a dirty childhood story, but in this one, I'm talking about the present uh, and things about that are harder to talk about for me in the present. You know, so um, I felt better about this, and the response has been better than anything I've ever done. Well, that's why I say reintroduction because it feels like this hour gives people a chance to see who you are, yeah, rather than you just talking about what's going on in the world. I was bored with the world. I'm sick of Trump. Like, I talk about him now, and plus, like, a fucking dope. I tripped. I, I've, been, I've told this story before. I literally tripped on the punchline. I had a joke about it. It was a grab the pussy joke. And I said, drab a pussy. I said, it was like, you, you bribe a dust. Like a dope. I tripped on it. And when I tripped on it, in the moment, in the room, it felt okay. Mm-hmm. But in, in uh, the edit, I'm like, it just doesn't look professional for a special. You know, that doesn't stop Sean Spicer. No, you're right. That flubs words all the time. And I, I, maybe I should have left it, but I felt the bit wasn't mm-hmm. strong enough anyway. Right. I'm like, I, I don't mind making fun of Trump, but I didn't want to take an easy route and just make fun. Uh, you know, I want to at least say something, or I like to attack the public more than the politician because I think that we're ultimately responsible, right? And I think they're actually reflections of us. So we I voted. Look, we voted, yeah, and uh, and they come from us. So I like making fun of people's reaction to things more than the people who are doing it. Okay. Now the first time, you know, I was aware of you before I met you, but the first time I remember meeting you was in 2005. It was uh, I was a newspaper reporter for the Boston Herald. 
and you uh, had come up, it was just about 12 years ago now, you had come up to Boston with Opie and Anthony oh, wow. to do a broadcast across the street from Fenway Park. Right. And uh, you were you were well-established as the third mic at that point. Yeah. Did you ever imagine, was it part of your dream list of things to do to become the second mic and then the first mic? Never. No. Um, I was happy being the third mic on Opie and Anthony. Right. That was a really powerful show and a really fucking fun show to do. And uh, going back and forth with Anthony, I mean, it's really, really hard to replace that because he's so fast and he's funny. Um, and then when Opie and I did this show, it felt like it, it, neither of us was that happy. And I don't think it's a reflection on him or me. It's just it was almost like you had lost this comic genius. I mean, Ant's right. a fucking nut, but he's a genius and he's the funniest motherfucker in the world. And when you pull such a force out. I think every time we looked at each other, it was almost like we were a married couple and our kid had been kidnapped. And like every time you look at each other, you just see what used to be there and, and you're trying to recapture something or right. make something and it just can't happen. I think he's happier doing a show in the afternoon with these different guys and I'm happier doing a show with Sam because they both feel like fresh and new. Um, but I did Anthony's show yesterday. Like I love Anthony, man. I love performing with him. I love when he comes on with me and Sam. He did our live show. He's the funniest guy in the world, and he's brutal. But even taking away your relationship with those two personalities professionally, did you think at this point you would still be on the radio? You know, I like that. This would be your thing. I don't, you know, it's funny. I don't know. I always think that the radio is temporary, and I, I sometimes I forget. Like, no, this is what you do for a living. Like, you yeah. talk to a lot of people. You've been doing every it for day. seventeen years, and I forget that, and I keep feeling like I'm just stalling until my real thing comes. And it's almost like, no, this is your thing. The other stuff is peripheral. Right. Stand-up is my thing. But, I mean, as far as anything besides stand-up. Right. And I get to talk and say whatever I want for three hours a day with a guy I like. Right. It's the thing you do more than anything else. In the world. In your day. Yeah. In your life. Yeah. And it's <laughs> you fun. You do this, talking into microphones. Yeah. Usually with more people involved. But. Well, yeah, but there's no pressure either. I mean, it's like, you know, me and Sam have a really good time. Mm -hmm. We love the crew that we have with us. We have fun. Uh, you know, Bob Saget came in today. We get to interview cool people. It, it, it's really a fun, uh, it's a fun fucking thing, man. Girls in there once in a while. I've been getting a lot of emails from people since Mouthful of Shame came out, like dirty ones. Oh, which is fucking great, dude. <laughs> it makes, makes it all worth it. Yeah, I, I just revealed something very personal about myself on Facebook. And what did you was, reveal? I was, in, I was talking about uh, how long it's been since I've had sex. Oh, oh, I did read that. How many years? Twelve. Twelve years. Yeah. Are you asexual? No. I'm divorced. Okay. Um, you're, but, not, you're not gay? No. So it, is, it, is it just that you're no, shy? Well, no. I'm, that my, that's my point is that actually revealing that like there's been interesting developments in the last oh. – just since then. It's, it's an interesting – how it's not only freeing but being vulnerable elicits a lot of responses you might not expect. Or Have you gotten laid? Almost. Okay. You're working on it. By the time this comes out, who knows? Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um, what, no, for twelve years, I did read that. You're right, I did read that. Is it was it shyness, or did you just lose like the desire for it, or like what, did you go through a period where you just couldn't? It, it was like it almost like the self fulfilling thing. I, at a certain point, inertia set in, but yeah, yeah, inertia, right, right, right. Just like yeah, I didn't realize how much my, the divorce really crippled me sure. internally. Did you uh, ever think of paying for it? What's that? Did, did you ever think yeah. of paying just to get out of the rut? Yeah, I've talked to people. Never did it. I mean, though. I've talked to people who've done it, and they've suggested like places I could go. And yeah, yeah, it's not the same. No, I know what you mean. It's not. Um, 
But that has nothing to do with you. No, but it is interesting, though, because with sexual stuff, we all get caught up in, in things, uh, and, and there's a shame to them. There's, and right. I'm not just trying to cheaply segue my Mouthful show. Mouthful of shame. But yes. it really is shame. Is like, I, I thought of it recently. It's the fucking most... It's the thing people go to war over. Like, nobody admits they're wrong because then they're embarrassed and ashamed to admit we're wrong. Politicians won't admit they're wrong. Countries... It's happening right behind us on the TV. People are... Every this night. Healthcare thing. It's, every night. Yeah. And it's, it's both sides, you know. It's like you're on CNN, the talking heads scream at each other. On Fox, they scream at each other. And it's nobody... Like, you never hear any of them going, hey, that's a good point. <laughs> well, you're right. I didn't think of that. And like, why Very is rarely. that so shameful? Yeah. It's an okay thing to say in a debate. Like, hey, that's a great point. When you were a teenager running around New Jersey creating havoc and then going into rehab, were you e- even able to comprehend this kind of a life? Or, I mean, no. Uh, it was a pipe dream. It was a fucking pipe dream. I was just going to grow up and be a big famous comedian. And I was going to do comedy. But, that, but I really knew deep down that it was a lie and it was smoke in the distance. And I was literally just going to be a warehouse worker and a drive a forklift. And I knew it was delusions of grandeur and it was a fucking dream that I was never going to get to. I always knew that this was fake and not going to happen. And after a while, like the first time I did stand-up was with a buddy of mine, a sober buddy of mine, Larry, mm-hmm. came to a show. And I'm like, I'm gonna, I saw the open mic sign. I'm like, I'm going to do it knowing I wouldn't do it. Would you have ever done it before, Sobriety? No. I was three years sober when I started. No. Because I was too frightened. Being sober at least gave me some kind of self-esteem. Or some, it gave me some kind of a, 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 a framework of follow-through. Right. Like do steps or, or something to move forward. I was running around in circles. Not knowing how to make anything fucking. I'm the worst. Dude, I'm 48 years old, and sometimes I still can't leave the apartment because I'm jerking off looking to see if that girl sent me a Facebook message. It's like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Sometimes I'm still caught up in that craziness. Yeah, I was bumbling around on Bumble before you showed up. Oh, uh, Bumble's the worst because like, ladies go first. <laughs> Fuck. That's what I figured, right? I don't need that. I, like, go to t- you're, uh, you're on Tinder? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Happen? Try happen. H a p p n. That's uh-huh. not a bad one. I went on a date with happen, Rachel. Happen, our new sponsor. Oh uh, yes, H a p p n. I went on a date with Rachel. You could tell. Oh. Uh, the uh, Tiger Woods is first. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nothing happened. We didn't kiss. We didn't do anything. Uh-huh. She was lovely. Um, I would love to have just worshipped her feet, but it didn't work out that way. But the idea of, of having goals and taking action to achieve those goals—that's what got you mentally prepared yeah, to, and, and I was to do praying, an open mic. Yes, and I was praying a lot back then, you know, part of being sober. It's right. harder for me now. I still make myself do it, but just the act of doing it kind of gave me, like, okay, mental strength. I'm going to do this. And I was writing down jokes, not thinking I'd ever go. I, get, I knew something was going to step in to stop it. It's almost like when you're fantasizing about fighting someone, but you know you're never going to fight. Right. But all of a sudden, here I am, and the guy <laughs> is bawling up his fist at me, and I'm like, oh, fuck. Right. I showed up. The show happened. I went on. Like, it wasn't even me doing it. I was, like, watching it from a distance. And hearing your... I remember my first joke, and it was awful. And it was, uh, you know, scientists just discovered a new black hole. Uh, turns out it was just Oprah Winfrey laying spread eagle. Cricket. Fucking nothing. Because I didn't know that, A, that was too dirty to open with. Right. And, B, I didn't know you have to establish a relationship right. with people. Because it's funny now, but you've established a relationship with so many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and now, your delivery is much better. And I also know that it's going to bomb, and I'm okay with it. Like... <laughs> I know it's a shit joke. <laughs> I wish I taped back then, dude. I, I started taping early, but I didn't tape that first show. But I probably have the set list somewhere. I say, well, I mean, the equipment in the early '90s wasn't what it is. Not as good, but you still had tape recorders. I remember David Tell and Judah Freelander in the '90s and early 2000s running around mm-hmm. with a tape recorder with tape with a rubber band. I think it was Judah, Judah still uses some sort of weird ancient contraption. Yeah, he's an OCD lunatic, though. Yeah. Um, 
Who was at those open mics with you? You know, was there anybody who's still around? Jim Florentine. I met uh, when I would go to shows. And I would watch. I, I went to a few shows first. Mm-hmm. And I watched the headliners. One of the headliners at my first show was uh, Quentin Heggs. Do you know Quentin Heggs? He no. hosted Dangerfields to this day. Okay. Um, Otto and George was one of my first, who became one of my closest friends. Um, a guy named Jeff. I keep forgetting his last name. I'm really losing my mind. He was very funny. I can't remember his last name. He was a little odd guy, and I'm really mad that I can't remember his name. Florentine was emceeing mm-hmm. one time. And uh, it's so weird that I became friendly with most of those guys. But, yeah, I would just go and watch them. I remember Florentine, would, me and my buddy would go and sit in the front row. What was the club at the time? Uh, the Varsity Pub in Spotswood, New Jersey. I okay. think once a month or on Saturdays they would have shows. And the guy, Pat Gaynor, died. Uh, and I will always love this guy because he would he talked to me before he had a reason to. I had nothing to offer him. And he, he, would, he would ask me to go up and introduce the shows. Not, Not host them. No, no, I wasn't ready. I'd never done right. stand-up. But just to go up and go, hey, thanks for coming to the Varsity Pub. We right. have a great show for you tonight starting your headline. Please welcome your host and MC. It was like that. That's all I said. No joke. He wanted to get me used to talking into the microphone. And if you at home could see me, I just tapped the microphone. <laughs> and Sean should have smashed my face with the fucking equipment. <laughs> now, I'm a gentle giant of comedy. Um, You'd have been right. It's okay. Well, it's kind of like a Mr. Miyagi trick that he was pulling on you. That's right. Yeah. He, he Paint the fence, wax the floor. That's right. Just go up and talk, go up and talk, and all of a sudden I had talked. But even that, I still wasn't ready for the open mic in the bar area next door. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was weird to hear your voice projected. I'd never heard my voice projected before coming back at me. So the fact that I still do stand-up all these years later is miraculous. <laughs> I can't believe I still do it. Do you ever hear yourself on the serious replays? Or? Yeah, once in a while I'm used to that. I don't listen to the replays. I'll listen to old bits on the... Like, I can listen to Chip or Uncle Paul because they don't sound like me. Right. Um, or some old O&A clips I can listen While to. While you're putting together your new reel. What's that? When you're putting together your yeah. new reel. Uh, if you have to... You, greatest hits of Chip. <laughs> yeah, Chip Jefferson's greatest hits. Uncle. I did Uncle Paul today. I talked about... Uh, Sexually abusing one of our staff members. It was great. It was so much fun. <laughs> Travis. <laughs> so much fun acting like a criminal. Yeah, yeah, I was talking to Travis about it. It was really fun, man. Because when you know a guy can take it and when a guy's enjoying it and literally laughing with mm-hmm. you, it makes it fun. How long did it take you to just get over the logistics of being on stage in front of people talking to a microphone? A while, man, because, you know, once I started getting laughs... And the comedians, guys like the Reverend Bob Levy, mm-hmm. Jim Florentine, uh, a lot of guys that don't even do it anymore. Uh, Eddie Gambino still does it. He was nice to me, and Quentin was nice to me, and guys like Joey Vega when I first started. Uh, when they started telling me I was funny, it meant something. When Reward and John Magnus and the Rascals in New Jersey told me I was funny, it meant something. So when I heard that from these guys, that kind of gave me the... I got over it a little bit, and I can hear stupid Keith over there. <laughs> I've known Keith. I found a picture of me, Keith, and Rich Voss from December of 1995, and the 20th anniversary just passed, and I wanted to take a picture of the three of us in that same oh, year. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't. We just, none of us gave a shit. I probably should have on the same date 20 years later. I used to have to wait five more years. Yeah, yeah. Do it on the 25th or, or, anniversary. Or three, or two. What is it now? Three. Three more years. You're, You're right. December of 20. Yeah. Were you one of those guys... That hung around the club, but talked to every headliner, or did you sit quietly? I um, I didn't heckle. I sat through no, I my buddy after the show. After the show, because when I when I first got involved in comedy out in Seattle, I would be like the house MC or just the rug rat at the, at the comedy underground, and I would 
if I wasn't too intimidated, I would go up to every headliner and ask them sure. questions and advice. Yeah, I would talk to them. Um, before, when I first started, before I did comedy, Pat Gaynor would introduce me to one of the comedians, and they would talk to me. And I think some of them were very local comedians that never had any real, at least at that point, hadn't gotten any TV credit. It was 1990. Right. So I think that they felt cool talking to somebody who was looking up to them in a way. Because, like, again, they hadn't been jaded yet. Right. Because a lot of them were like, like only a few years in. So they were very giving. Um, uh, I, I remember Bob Levy in particular. Because I really, I mean, I still love Bob Levy. And I, I looked up to him a lot when I first started because he was so fast. And he's still fast. Do you know who he is, Bob Levy? Yeah. He's a, and he's vicious. Um, but you watch him work a crowd, he was fearless. And I remember watching this guy and go, motherfucker, how does he do that? And uh, him and his wife, Lori, um, they, they really took to me and they treated me really well. And they got me a lot of work. And Bobby fucking drank like William Holden. So he would always want someone to drive him to a gig so he didn't plow into a pole. So then being sober really helps you. It helped me a lot because they, I, mean, I did well on stage, but there was a lot of funny guys. Mm-hmm. And they wanted someone they liked to hang out with. Uh, I remember I bought a brand new you know, Saturn. I was so proud of it. No one had smoked it. And stupid Bob lit up a cigarette. I didn't have the heart to tell me, shithead, that no one smoked it. I'm like, why oh, I lit up a smoke? I'm telling you, I know what I'm doing. He just smoked out the window. But Bobby got me a lot of work in the beginning, and Jim Florentine got me a lot of work. Because you have to like the guys you're around. Because right. you could choose guys like Gemini, John Lombardi in uh, New Jersey, and Bob Gonzo, these bookers from, from Jersey. They took really good care of me, man. I, I would never would have made it to the, where I am now without these people. What was it like coming up in the mid-'90s when it was between comedy booms? Um, a lot of guys got squeezed out. I came in 1990, and the boom of the 80s was done. Yeah. So... It bottlenecked, and a lot of people got squeezed out because they couldn't make their living anymore. But I was willing to go to Maryland for $25. I lived at home. I got fired from my day job and collected unemployment for two years. I was just going to ask what, what you were doing for work until you made it. Yeah, I was doing uh, warehouse work, driving a forklift. I worked at Leia Coast Lamps, um, and I would go to Maryland for 25 bucks with Florentine and Levy and come back at like 3 o'clock in the morning and miss work the next day. And they're like, you suck. I was so dumb. I, I, they brought in some Italian guy in the warehouse. He was like training to do my job. I didn't even know I was helping my replacement. And uh, they're like, you, you, we're just, you're not getting it done here. So I collected unemployment for two years, and that helped me become a full-time comic. I just did, did you ever have another job after that? Never. Or? Never another day job after that. But I lived at home, too, for a long time. Okay. But I made enough money to pay a, a minimal rent anyway. So How was your family in terms of being supportive of this New lifestyle. Of they yours. were great. They were just happy. I, you know, they didn't know I was getting hookers and parking in front of the. I used to see a prostitute. Not until the book. Did they know? Then they read it. Yeah. Did no, they no. know before the book? No, no. They had no idea that I would park the car in the driveway and put the sun visor up. I still miss those days. Um, they were fun. They were fun. <laughs> and get blown in my driveway. That was a good time. But I uh, no, they didn't know till the book. But they they helped me a lot. They were really supportive, man. Okay. I was very very fortunate. They were they were really nice people. When was the first time you felt that? this was going to be your career that you didn't have to look back and you know I never left the safety net I have no education really so I never left the safety net there was nothing but warehouse work waiting for me or tough labor so I always knew I mean you know and now and back then I always said look if this doesn't work out I'll just commit suicide like that was how I looked at stand up and I wasn't even being dramatic I was just like that's my option so you have to make it or you have to try to make it because not that I probably wouldn't commit suicide I probably just would have got a job but to me it was almost like Okay, I want to be a comedian, and I can't face the possibility of failing. So, okay, I'll just kill myself. So that was kind of like a, a safe, almost like it was less scary than the prospect of work. Like, because it left everything in life, there was only one possibility, and that was stand-up. Right. Like, if I didn't make it as a stand-up, 
I'm going to have to get married and raise a kid and get a warehouse job. That's horrifying. Right. I'll shoot myself. All right, piece of cake. That's an intangible. It doesn't right. feel connected. So, and even though I probably never would do that, I mean, there's still not many days that go by where I don't, it doesn't occur to me quickly. Um, it's, you know, it's nonsense. It's just a, th- a comforting thought, like, mm-hmm. like a, 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 a sick pleasure. Mm. Um, but I always kind of kept that um, in the, on the back burner as a possibility. So right. that kind of freed me up. Like, hey, man, do whatever you want to do. Cause if this doesn't work, just fucking hang yourself. Who cares? How did you hook up with Dice initially? Went to L.A. to take the Louis Anderson show. I shared a, the Wyndham Bellage. I shared a hotel room with Jim Florentine, Lenny Marcus, and Rich Franchese. Four of us in one hotel. The Louis Anderson show on Santa Monica Boulevard. I'm sorry, Santa Monica Pierce. And uh, I was doing a clean set. Maureen Tarrant got me a clean set at the comedy store the night before. And, um, oh, this was the late night show that he did. 1997, yeah. Yeah. I, I think he it was, was like on late Fridays or late Saturdays after. It might have been. I remember watching that, that show. It might have been. And uh, I remember I went to the comedy store and Dice walked in and I was speechless. And I said hello to him. He was a dick. And then he went on stage, so I used the comedy store payphone, and I held it up. I'm like, Jim, guess who's on stage? I called Florentine. And he was like, holy fuck, and he came down. So Dice at the comedy store, the one act brings on the next act. Right. And Dice had never heard of me, and he's like, this next guy's terrific. I don't know who he is. He's great. He's great. Real shitty intro, Jim Norton. And I ate my dick horribly, because Frankie Pace didn't want to follow Dice. Ate my dick horribly. Came off and Florentine was talking to Dice because mm-hmm. me and Florentine were obsessed with the day the laughter died. We would always make fun of how like it was one of the greatest albums ever made and two of the greatest albums. But we would joke about how none of it made sense. How right. Dice just didn't like he was just saying stupid, dirty things. So we're talking to him. We're like, "What the fuck did you mean by that?" Because he goes, "It doesn't make sense." I'm like, "No." We were like scolding him for his material, but he knew that we were absolute fans and loved right. him, and he was out of his mind enjoying this he goes you guys gotta go on stage and do this he takes me and Florentine into the back room of the comedy store I wish I had saved the handwritten notes and me him and Jim are writing down jokes he goes I want you guys to go on stage and just do my act from there and we're like alright it was embarrassing but we did it because we couldn't believe this was happening so Dice talks the guy into letting us go on he goes mm-hmm. the next comic said alright special treat here's Jim and Jim <laughs> me and Florentine go on I had just bombed a half hour ago, and we're just doing dice lines, deadpan, back and forth. From the day the laughter died. And part two. <laughs> I would lean into the mic. I'd like to eat your cunt in a big red chair. Nothing. And all you hear is, oh, fucking dice is laughing like Max <laughs> Katie in the back of the room. And I do have that on cassette somewhere. I, I have that on cassette, and I got to play that because I think it would be... I haven't listened to it in 20 years. And it's been 20 years. It changed my life. I love fucking Dice Clay so much. He changed my life. I love him. Yeah, because it was through him that you met Opie and Anthony. Met Opie and Anthony, and it was Opie who really brought me in. Um, Ant and I weren't as close until the new show came. Mm-hmm. Then Anthony and I got super close. But uh, Opie of the... T- I mean, I loved Anthony, but Opie was the guy that said, we're going to get you paid, we're going to do all this. Was their show so comedy, uh, comedian-heavy at the time? It was comedian-friendly, but uh, the dynamic changed when I came on. And, um, they, and me and Anthony were talking yesterday, and somebody called up Anthony's show. And he goes, you know what? I remember when, when Jimmy first started coming on, he started acknowledging the bombs. And he said that was what changed the tone of the show. Uh, and Anthony goes, yeah, because when a bomb would happen, we would just kind of laugh nervously. Right. And, and he, he's like, no, you would slow it down and go, what? 
and and because it was the honesty from here, from dealing with Colin and Keith and Patrice, that you just acknowledge this. Right, shit. And tough crowd hadn't started yet. No, after opening, I think I kicked off the air August of two thousand two, September. Colin comes and says, "We're going to conceptualize this new show. <laughs> we do eight episodes, and by early two thousand three, it's on the air." I literally fucking. I, 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 I coattail road from one to the other, and then Tough Crowd gets canceled, and they're right back to Opie and Anthony on satellite. It's amazing my ability to grab on. I'm like a fucking. I'm like the like 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 like, the, like a like a what was that creature? It was a horror movie. Where all you got to do is touch it, and the creature is in you. I can't remember. It's an awful reference, and I should just cut my losses and shut up. No one cares about my reference. Well, people will be googling it. They'll while, understand while they're, it. Yeah, they're gonna pause. Yes, Google. Pause Google. Just look up leech. That's what I was. But I really had good timing. <laughs> not a slug. No, not a slug. Oh, De Niro improv. Did you see the end of the special where, uh, where, where there's that 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 uh, outtake with me and De Niro? Yeah. You saw that, where he goes. Uh, he's going over what he's going to do, and he calls me a slug, and I laugh. Because the line I had written was worm. I had said, because uh, we had talked on the phone the day before, and he goes, uh, "This is a, some of us a little mean. Can we do like a nicer version too? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Knowing that we would do both versions and whichever one was funnier. So he wants to do this nicer version. So we're in this uh, thing rehearsing, and he goes up, I'm going to slap you, and then I'm going to go, uh, okay, uh, say it with conviction, you ugly slug. And he made it meaner. Like, we just talked the day before, and he's trying to say he doesn't want to be as mean, and then he hits me with a fucking meaner improv, and it was more accurate. Mm-hmm. I just knew, you ugly little slug. It just, it, the punctuation of that from him was so beautiful, and it caught me so off guard, and he made me laugh out loud. That was a real laugh. I wasn't faking that. Right. Um, well, slug's a good word. Oh, my God, you ugly little slug. The beauty slug. of the G's in that you ugly little slug. slug. The flow of those words. Uh, being on a show, you know, I ask you about the comedian friendliness of Opie and Anthony, and that, and then Tough Crowd. So great for, like, comedians on the come up. I'm sure if you're a big star, it's good to be on TV or uh, sure. on national radio. But for, like, when you hear comedians talk about getting better exposure and being able to sell tickets they talk about Opie and Anthony or Bob and Tom like, yeah everything else is like oh it's the morning radio I or Stern radio. I mean Stern would be great for that too I'm sure if you can get on Stern that would help but, you but usually you're already established established to be on Stern yeah I mean for tickets and all that stuff the only thing well radio is a weird soap opera they love you they hate you because mm-hmm. they get to know so much about you you know my people know more about me than I know than I remember remember you said this you fucking hypocrite like, oh, then I I don't remember it's 2007 it was a decade ago. Like, right. I really don't remember. I get reminded of a guy. Someone wrote me about some 9-11 conspiracy guy, and they said I was a real dick to him on the phone in 2006. And I don't remember. And, or maybe 2005. And I, I, I answered the email. I'm like, well, I don't remember this guy. And it, it, I probably would be different to him now. Mm-hmm. But back then, it was also a lot closer to everybody's psyche because right. it had happened more recently. And I was not as mature back then. I listened to some of that old stuff, and I yelled too much. And I... I, I you know, some of it was really funny and warranted, and other times it was because I didn't know how to process anything else. You know, you it's like you just look back at yourself and you're like, ugh, I sucked back then. And but over the last five years, podcasting, such as this is, sure. really has opened doors for comedians who couldn't figure out where the doorknob was right. before. Yes. But you have been on the radio for 10 years before that. Yeah. So did you feel the impact immediately on your career in terms of... Ticket sales? Ticket sales and just 
loyalty of fans and yeah i mean i i think most of them are pretty loyal mm-hmm. and they when, when they love me they love me when they hate me they hate me they're very passionate either way and when they hate me they hate my guts so yeah the radio is a very powerful medium and i saw that before podcasts um and you know i've gotten a lot of love from comedians too and that makes me feel really good like a lot of comedians who podcast listen to the Opie and Anthony show. I mean, Rogan only did his podcast because of Anthony's compound show, and he said that that's what inspired him to set up his podcast. Hmm. So when I look at the show that I was a part of for a long time, I feel like we had a really positive influence on the way, you know, and this whole cringy humor thing, and we Hmm. embraced that. And I feel really great about being a part of that and tough crowd. Um, You know, the comedians are funny on their own, but I feel like uh, we we always showcased really good comedians, and I was never afraid of. I loved funny guys. I love Bill Burr. I love Patrice O'Neill. Uh, all these guys that would come in, Bobby Kelly, Rich Voss, all these funny dudes uh, that would Keith would ever come on. But even though one of the funniest guys I've ever known, you know, uh, I always embrace funny people and Otto, and uh, so mm. I, I love our show for that. I love the Open Anthony show. We always wanted fucking funny people in, man. Did you, when, you're, when you were working for those few years as a correspondent or a regular guest for Leno, Yes. did you ever feel like you were caught between comedian worlds because people were t- taking sides? Yeah, in a way I was. And, and I didn't mind people. Like, if people said, hey, I don't think Jay Leno is funny. Well, that's an opinion taste, and, and that's okay. Right. But they would kill him for way, and it was almost like they made it look, and Letterman's a funny guy, and Conan's a funny they're, they're all funny. But I guess because I knew Jay... And I knew the content that they had told me on Letterman I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And I knew when I did Leno, I was going to do like an animal fucking joke. I'm whispering because there's a kid here. <laughs> and Debbie Vickers like, ah, try it. If we cut it, we cut it. Like the freedom they gave me on The Tonight Show. Everyone thought like, wow, this Leno is a real nerd. He's a goody gum. Meanwhile, Leno has a giant cock and fucked a lot of girls in Hollywood to pay his bills for years. Leno goes out and does gigs every night. Leno embraced me and didn't care that I was dirty. Like, these guys let me do what I wanted to do. And it was almost like it was the misconception that he was this goody two-shoes. But when people thought that someone was funnier than someone, that I have no issue with. Because, you know, you got a right Right. to like who you like. But he treated me really well. Conan's people, I'll never do Conan probably. And look, I'm sure he's mad because I took sides or his people are. I'm sure he doesn't even know who I am. But uh, they've they've never... I I was a panel guest... On the Tonight Show, and Letterman I had done twice, and Conan's people wouldn't look at me without, we got to see your set first. So I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. And it wasn't that I didn't think Conan deserved it. Mm -hmm. It was that the guys who booked his shows were never good to me Mm -hmm. way back when. They never treated me like anything. I was always, I guess, in their minds, not good enough to be on the show. Right. So uh, I said, I'll never audition for the show. And it's not even a reflection on him. It's a reflection on the guys. And I'm not saying I got to go on and be a... uh, a panel guest, but they're like, well, we got to see the set that he might do. And I told my manager, do not even respond. Respectfully, just let them say no. What perspective does that give you now whenever, you, you know, going through that and going through all the t- the, the separations with, with Anthony and Opie, when you see comedians kind of take sides against each other, whether it's alternative versus the clubs or whether it's people against a specific, there's a backlash against who's popular. Whether, yeah. it's, whether it was Dane Cook 10 years ago or Amy Schumer now. Comedians aren't really bashing Amy as much, though. It's more comedians are bashing Dane. It's not really comedians who are bashing Amy. Maybe some, but not a lot. With Dane, it was a lot of comedians bashing right. him. But whenever you see any time that comedians are taking sides against another comedian, does, does, 
your past experiences give you perspective on how to avoid that fray or how to deal with it? Well, you know, it, it's weird. Like, comedians have... I don't particularly like seeing comics bash each other, but again, why not? Like, they have the right to have opinions about stuff, right. too, so if, if there's a comedian who's polarizing, why not comedians take sides on it? I don't really care. I mean, if, if a comedian addresses me negatively or whatever, I'll, I'll address them right. back negatively. Um, it doesn't happen very often. Um, Usually there's a lot more on social media than there is at the seller table. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, I can't, I, I don't there's think... a lot I, of fire on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, one gay comedian got mad at me because I said the word faggot or whatever in, in bits. But it's almost like, shut the fuck up. Like, you know the context I use it in. Right. It's not about saying, hey, gay people are faggot. Like, you understand that? People are talking about Chappelle's. Well, I didn't, hear what he, I didn't see his uh, set. Well, was, well, he put out two specials just right. now on Netflix, and one of them... There's jokes about where he talks about trannies and let him. I mean, yeah. uh, but th this is the I, and again, I can't even compare because Chappelle is in such a different world than I am, notoriety-wise and fame-wise. So it's not. Right. But it's almost like I spoke positively about trans people. Nobody gives a shit. He speaks negatively. But again, it's not a fair comparison because he's so much more famous. Right. But it's almost like people like to find the thing they can get mad at. That's more satisfying for people not to go. Hey man, this guy talked about trans people in a, in a positive way because mm -hmm. um, that's not interesting. What's interesting is find the guy who says something that we don't like and go after him. But mm -hmm. it, again, Resentments. the fame level is, is also what makes Dave so much more visible. So that's not really an accurate comparison. Right. Um, I'm only making it because it's, it's just what people do is they go after the negative. They like to go after the negative because right. then they can write about it. And they can, uh, what's the word? Uh, virtue signal. When they write about someone being naughty, they can virtue signal. Oh, I didn't go for that. Right. Shut up. Or like still cheat like on being your girlfriend. The white oh, it's the worst. How many white knights cheat on their girlfriends? How many white knights download porn of fifteen-year-old girls or do the same creepy shit? They're like, shut your faces. <laughs> God, it annoys me. I'm not a white knight. I'm not gonna rescue anybody. You know, I'm just a creep. I'm not a predator. That's the one good thing I'll say about myself. I'm not a predator. You know, I'm a jerk. Who do you who do you talk to at this point of your career, where you're famous but you don't have the Chappelle? Right, 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 right. I mean, not even close to Dave's thing. I mean, who do you talk to? Like my manager, I talk to every day. I'm friends with my. I, I mean, I'm Bob Kelly, my comedian friends, Colin. Mm -hmm. Most of them are, 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 are comedians who I'm friends with. Um, you know, I talk to uh, my ex girlfriend is probably my best friend. I'm actually friends with two of my trainers. I speak to them a lot. But I mean, you know, I have a decent amount of friends. Uh, I would say the majority of them are comics. I talk to Sam a lot because he's my coworker. Right. Um, sometimes I talk to fans too, like on social media. Are they go are they good in terms of like uh, tampering down those those sometimes depressing dark thoughts that still might come up? Um, sometimes, but the thoughts are never about them. It's always about me. So you know, I go through my phases where I feel irrelevant and invisible and worthless, and it's not about being ungrateful. I'm grateful for my life. I make a good amount of money. I have a nice apartment. I've been very blessed. But it's not about ungrateful. It's about thinking I'm garbage. Do you know what I mean? It's not like the business hasn't been fair to me. My pilots didn't get picked up. And I think, because Jim, you're shit, that the business hasn't been unfair to me. I'm not a victim. I've, been, I've given a lot of chances. So I can't get mad at myself. I mean, I'm sorry, at them. I get mad at myself. So, no, they, they can't really help with that because it's always... So what do you do to recognize that that's just in your head? You know, you try to remember, like, what feelings aren't good or bad. They just are. Or just... Hey, man, <laughs> you know, aren't facts. They, feelings aren't facts, man. You just, you're feeling a certain way right now. It'll pass. You know it'll pass. Look at your life, you dope. You talk for three hours a day. You do a podcast with Matt Serra. 
talking about the UFC. Like, literally, I have to go home on a Saturday night sometimes to watch the fights because it's part of my job. Dana White pays me to talk about fights with a guy I like. Like, who the fuck am I to come? Like, sometimes I say that right. to myself. You like, could complain to Joe Rogan about that stuff. Rogan. Because then he'll at least yeah. identify with the UFC stuff. But, but even he knows, like, it, what a fun life we have. Right. Like, how many guys drive a truck and are stuck in the snow or drive a forklift like I used to do and would kill to goof off with their friends on the radio? Like, you do forget. Mm-hmm. Guy I used to hear talk um, in a 12-step group, and he would talk about luxury problems. Yes. I have luxury problems. Uh, I'm fortunate to have these problems. They're not real issues. Oh, I don't have a girlfriend because I cheat. I'm a hunk of shit. I could get a girlfriend. Oh, nobody loves me. Sure they do, dumbbell. They so what, all love you. Your friends all love you. I have wonderful friends. So what do you want at this point? I'm greedy, Sean. That's my problem. I'm a greedy fucking prick. And I grab for more than my shit. Cookies more! That's what it is. And mm-hmm. I have to be harsh on myself because when I break it down realistically, mm-hmm. like right now, I'm just talking to you. We're having a good time talking. Right. This is my job. Like we are in a, in, a, in a, you write and you broadcast now and we're working and there are a million people who are serving tables for a living who like, look at these two fucking assholes talking and it's their job. Right. Like there is something so satisfying about that and I get so grateful for the life I have and the ugliness that creeps in, maybe I'm just not comfortable without it. What do they say? We get a misshapen pleasure out of feeling bad. Mm. I'm used to feeling bad and I'm comfortable feeling bad. I have a history of self-sabotage. Oh, my God. So do I. The ism, I sabotage me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, this, this, this special coming out mm. and, and being well-received, before it came out, I was like, this stinks. Really? Yeah, it's ter- horrible. I, I remember I had a really fleeting thought. Was that just from watching it so many times? Yes, and I had to walk away from it for a week. I'm like, this is garbage, mm-hmm. and I am utterly... And then my manager watched it, and he goes, Jim, it's really good. Like, it, it, it's well done. It's put together. And my, my, I, my director was uh, Sharon, Shannon Hartman and Michelle Caputo at Dell Arts and Industry are phenomenal. And people keep saying how beautifully it was shot. That's Shannon Hartman and Michelle. Like, they really knew. I had some input, though. And uh, I, I chimed in a little, but one thing I'll say, like in positive, right. I didn't let my ego go. I know what's wrong. They know what they're doing. <laughs> I did ask them to move one thing a lights, which was a smart decision. So my fucking dumb round fat head wasn't in every shot. Um, but I think overall, I was I allowed myself to listen to them, and uh, I'm, I'm really happy with how, how it came out, and the fact that fucking De Niro did it. I, like I can't believe it. I can't believe that Gervais did me that favor. He improv those last lines. He said he wants to... Like, I wrote more stuff. Up to the part about the Netflix special. Right. You don't want to be... And then Ricky goes, oh, just say, uh, interrupt me so I have a reason to insult you. I'm like, okay. And he called me a little peeled turtle with AIDS and the king of cum guzzling. <laughs> and I'm like, this is phenomenal. And it's hard to hear what he says right. because I left in the real feed because the laughs were real. We didn't yeah, yeah. dub them. I didn't want it to be any other way. That's why it starts on a screen and zooms in. And there's a slight theater boom to it. But I wanted people to hear the ovation that they, those guys got, Louis and fucking yeah. Gervais and De Niro. And he was so good. I'm an actor. I'm not a fucking magician. Like, <laughs> oh, was he good in that? It was perfect. Like, and I forget, like, sometimes, like, you, un, you lucky motherfucker. Like, this is what life is now. Like, from this North yeah. Brunswick, and you hate life, and... You're a failure and you're getting your license three years sober or you're sober because you're so scared of everything. 
and like you're living your dream. Shut up. Yeah, you're a, far, a long way from being married and having that warehouse. Yeah, forklift job. So it's almost like you forget when you're in a place like you you are getting. I've gotten everything I've wanted that I was willing to work for, so I should shut my ungrateful fat fucking face. And I have to say that to myself. Shut up and just enjoy it. Well, I have to uh, shut up and just enjoy that. You were gracious enough to sit with me no, and, thank you. and let you sorry. go back to doing your job. I'm sorry it was so hard to schedule. I'm, I'm glad we did this. That's all right. Me too. Thanks all so right. much, Jim. Anytime, buddy. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.